change the narrative about what effective leadership is or should be because I think you know when we think manager we think male when we think manager we think you know a certain or leader we think a certain age or maybe you know that a person that looks a certain way and I want to be part of changing that game changing that narrative so that five years from now ten years from now um, our leadership actually looks more like our world, which is diverse in terms of race and gender and backgrounds and all sorts of other, you know, categories. And I think we have to change the game on leadership in order to get there. We can't, you know, keep just focusing in on the status quo. Yo, Ryan Hartley here from Always Better Yesterday. Welcome to the interview sessions where I put my curious questions to inspiring and successful people. Today is episode 104 and it is with Dr. Stephanie Mockler. I've been connected with Stephanie for some time. She is an inspiring leader, a female leader, um, and she has a website called thefemaleleadersedge.com. Go and check that out for more information on Stephanie. Um, Go and check out her TEDx talk as well. And I really hope that you hear something over the next half an hour that inspires you to develop the potential in the female leaders in your life. And, you know, leadership is about human beings. It's about people. But let's, let's be clear. Let's be real. There are more things that need to be done to create the world that Stephanie will later describe in this interview, which is about a leadership that represents the diversity of this world. So I really hope that you hear something that inspires and empowers you to uh, show up with your own leadership and get the best out of those around you. These interview sessions are brought to you by our great friends at Web Creation. Head to webcreationgroup.com for stunning websites at sensible prices. And just before we dive into the episode, head to Facebook, search We Are Always Better Than Yesterday. Come and join over 500 like-hearted, like-minded people from all around the world, and we will grow together in our hearts and in our minds. I'm Ryan Hartley, and this is episode 104 with Dr. Stephanie Mockler. Much love, guys. Stephanie, welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday interview sessions. We've had some fun in the build-up to this conversation. My internet's deciding to work. It's not. Hopefully, we're going to have a great conversation. Welcome. How are you? Thank you, Ryan. I'm really happy to be with you and I'm glad we could finally make this work, even with a spotty internet connection. I'm I'm doing well and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Should I introduce you as Dr. Stephanie? I think so. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, I would like to uh, get used to that title, which I'm certainly not used to it just yet. It'll probably take a while. So yeah, yeah, I kind of, I like the sound of it. Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations. I um, I was having a sneaky peek at your, um, your picture the day I zoomed in to look at the title of your PhD because I'm a curious human being. What was it all about and, and what were some of the things that you've learned going through that process of doing a PhD? Oh gosh, so much. So my, my PhD is in industrial organizational psychology, which is really the application of science to the workplace and to organizations. And 
it was a journey that unfolded over about a decade. So I'm a, a, probably a different person. I like to say that I think PhD programs sort of break you back down, break you down, and then you have to build yourself back up. So I think I'm coming out of it, um, built back up a little bit, or still at least trying to build myself back up. But one of the things I learned is that it, finishing a PhD program, once you get in, is is not really about intelligence or intellect. It's all about persistence and grit and sticking with it because there were so many moments where I wanted to give up and I thought, you know what? I have my master's degree. I'm doing work that I love. Why do I need to continue this forward and, and get the doctorate? Uh, I'm glad I stuck with it, but I think persistence was certainly something that I learned was was critical. And I can tell you all about you know my research focus and things I learned there if that's uh, interesting to you as well, but but that's one of my big takeaways from the journey. Mm. Of course, I'm interested. I'm just trying to figure out how soon to dive in. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've come to be working in such a field and, and, and doing what you do. Yeah, so one thing that's really key and central to my story is that I have an 18-year-old son I'm still young myself. I had him when I was really young. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a big part of my story because I don't think I'd be where I'm at today if I didn't become a mom at such a young age. It, it opened my eyes. It made me mature. You know, I was responsible for a, a human being who's a quite fantastic human being, if I might say at this point. And it actually shaped a lot of the research focus that I've had over the years. I've focused on issues related to motherhood and parenthood at work and family-friendly workplaces. And I don't know that I would have focused in on that if I didn't become a mom at, at such a young age and have some interesting experiences myself. So when I was in um, undergrad, I started in pre-med. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, maybe a pediatrician, a medical doctor, I should say, and realized pretty quickly that that wasn't necessarily the path for me. And so it ended up being a windy path to get where I'm at now. I start, I dabbled in clinical psychology. I thought maybe I wanted to do some sort of therapy or psychoanalysis and did some internship work and realized that I couldn't quite separate myself from some of what was happening with the, the adults and people that I worked with in that space. But I still knew I loved psychology and studying human behavior. So I found actually an, an IO psychologist in the business school where I did my undergrad work at and, and realized that I could still do psychology and I could still be a psychologist and I didn't necessarily have to work with you know, certain populations that I just felt like I wasn't cut out for it. I think people that do that work are amazing and fantastic and uh, it wasn't a good fit for me. So now I get to work day to day with leaders um, I, I do leadership coaching and leadership assessment and advise organizations on not only who to put in certain roles, but how to accelerate development and get people up to speed with the skills and, and capabilities they need to be successful in their career endeavors, what, whatever that is. And um, I love it. I love what I do. There's variety every day. It's, uh, it's really fast paced. I'm challenged constantly and I'm always learning and growing and um, I hope that never stops. Maybe the fast pace could slow down at times, but I hope the learning and growing never stops. I love that. And um, it's really interesting. I, I can relate to what you say around this, this parenting. It kind of shifts us in who we are and how we see the world. And over here, I was, uh, I was in the police and I became, at the time I became like a first line manager, like a leader for the first time, shall we say. Um, I also became a parent at the exact same time. And 
I think that was that was great for me because I I was able to see that leadership and parenting they're one of the same that that they're it's about service and sacrifice it, you know so often in the police I was conditioned that rank and hierarchy and position and status whereas I was going through this parenting thinking that's it's the same role I'm, I'm going to work looking after people you know and uh, it was a great time for me and I just wonder and I know you said in your TED talk your TEDx talk about this shift in in becoming a parent uh, what what does that do for you as your as you navigate the world and you, you talked a little bit about going into um to work as what sort of things have you experienced and why has that shaped this um drive to help female leaders in particular yeah so uh, i'll address your first question first what how has has parenting sort of shaped me and, and who i am and how i engage with the world part of it is it's giving me a lot of perspective so from from a really young age i've gotten feedback that i seem older than i am or people mm -hmm. meet me and they think oh wow you know you look a lot younger than i would have expected based on you know mm -hmm. hearing you on the phone or having a conversation with you and I think it's because when I had my son at, at such a young age, I had to quickly cut through things that didn't really matter. I had to be really good at prioritizing and managing my own time. I had to be more effective and efficient so that I could get things done and achieve my own personal goals while also attending to my son and my family. And that's helped me, I think, be really balanced in my current role. So I'm often, you know, the person that's kind of getting people to see both sides of an issue or um, challenging someone to think a bit more objectively or not to take something personally or to really think about, well, what actually matters here? You know, don't get all caught up in something that 10 minutes from now or 10 days from now isn't going to matter. And I think that that skill set I built because of being a parent. And maybe that resonates with you, Ryan, as a, as a dad yourself. Um, it's, it's that perspective. So that's one thing. Um, the reason I started focusing in a lot on female leaders was because I was, I think, um, people had lower expectations of me because I was a mom at a young age and a woman too. And I was told oftentimes, well, are you really sure you want to apply for this, you know, tough rigorous academic program, you know, you have a family at home and how are you going to balance those things? And my partner who I've been with now for 20 years, he never had anyone ask him anything of the sort. And he was a young parent too. He was a father, uh, but people to him would push him and encourage him to do things that were more challenging or that would allow him to make more money or be more successful mm -hmm. because the assumption was that he would be taking care of our family. And when I started getting some of these messages, if you watched my TED, TEDx talk, you would have seen that I um, got this message when I was applying for graduate programs. And it just kind of opened up a question for me around, well, what other messages are women getting and female mm -hmm. leaders in particular that make it more difficult for women to be successful in these sorts of career paths? And the data, you know, support this. There's something happening, right? When women make up about 50% of management level roles um, in the United States specifically. So, it, you know, I think it differs across countries, but uh, when you go up through the, the, the ranks, so to speak, women are smaller and smaller and smaller percentage up through the C-suite where women make up something like five to 7% of those positions. And so 
some of these messages that we get early on in our careers, I think shape a lot of that, right? There, there's a question of, well, can you do it all? Can you be a mom? Can you be a career professional? Can you be ambitious and kind and nice and collaborative? Sure you can if you want to, uh, but women get those messages and men men don't. So uh, let me stop there and, and see what you have to say because I just said a lot of stuff, but what do you- what, no, what are your- No, it resonates, it resonates. And um, I've been very fortunate enough to have some amazing female leaders and, 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 and to be part of their- uh, leadership development journey, shall we say? But I'm always one to learn. How can I, how can I best support and develop female leaders? It's such a great question. I'm glad you asked it. One of the things that I focused on over the last year is this concept of allyship and mm-hmm. what it means to be an ally to to women, to underrepresented groups, uh, to anyone you know who you could kind of lift up and help. And I think a mm-hmm. big part of it is being an advocate for women behind closed doors, especially if you find yourself in a room that's mostly men or that's pretty homogeneous, being a person that advocates for and speaks up about someone else that might have some expertise or the ability to be in a role is really key, right? I I would call that more sponsorship than Mm -hmm. allyship necessarily, but uh, you know, helping someone get opportunities that they might not otherwise, especially if you find yourself in the position of, of privilege or, or, you know, being being in a role where you could have some influence or impact. I think the other thing is just having the conversation and acknowledging that this might be something that exists, right? There might be stereotypes around what women can do or how women should mm-hmm. behave. Same goes for men. There's stereotypes around men that are damaging too. Uh, but if you have women that you work with or that report to you, being able to bring that up and, and, and just acknowledge that that exists and then ask them what they need can be really powerful, right? Give them the chance to, to tell you what, what would be helpful because everyone's going to have something different that, that might be, you know, something that they would share with you. So those would be two core things that come to mind. How can we, um, how can we expand that to the culture with which leaders create? So it's not just one individual, cause we don't want a leadership lottery of, you know, you get a good leader, you get a bad leader. How can, how can executives create the culture for, for females and women and, and maybe other underrepresented groups to thrive? Part of it is about leading inclusively, certainly, but also creating environments where people can bring their full selves to work. I think this would, this would apply for, for men as well. With younger generations and what we're seeing with the, the current workforce, men and women, everyone would report that they want to have both, you know, a a thriving personal life and a thriving professional life. And, you know, you go back 10 or 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case, right? You had to say that you were fully committed to, to work. You were fully committed to your career. That was, you know, where all of your time and energy was spent. And there might actually be a penalty if you said, well, I really need want to spend time with my family too. And so I'm going to leave the office a little early today because my son has a t-ball game and I'd like to be there. There were penalties for that for men and women. There still are in some cultures, but what executives can do is role model that sort of behavior, right? Be the one that says I'm leaving early because I want to go to my son's t-ball game or my family's really important to me. So I'm going to take a vacation and I'm actually going to unplug executives and and people that are in leadership roles 
can really change the culture of an organization if they demonstrate those behaviors, then it opens it up and makes others feel comfortable doing so as well. And that's not to say that you're not going to still get results and, you know, have a high bar and hold people accountable to getting things done. You know, of course you will, but people will be even more committed if they feel that they can bring their full self to work and talk about their family in a way that's not going to lead to some sort of penalty. Yeah, that's definitely a a background where I've come from, which is this sense of um, leave your, leave yourself or leave, leave home at home work is work. And, and, and I, I was fortunate enough to be part of a culture where that rec- we recognize people as people and that people bring them whole selves wherever they are. And if, and if you're in an environment that human beings cannot turn off emotions, so they're going to have those thoughts and feelings anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. And then it leads to that. Then what is the toolkit of a leader? How does a, what, what toolkit does a leader need to have to be able to, you know, empathically deal with a whole person in front of them. And that opens up a bigger question around, are we getting the right people in leadership roles? Yeah, we could have to, we could be going all night, mate. (laughs) Yeah, well, we've seen this actually over the last six months with so many people working remotely and and working from home. It's brought out in some ways the best and worst of, of leadership, right? There's been some leaders that in an office setting or in a traditional office environment, were great. They were fine, right? They were able to lead their teams and get things done. And then they shifted into this remote context. And some of the leaders I work with in particular had no idea how to connect with people or how to be there for people who might be going through something that's stressful and exhausting and and tough, right? And it's, it's interesting because I started encouraging people to ask questions that a year ago, I probably wouldn't have encouraged them to ask, but things like, well, who do you live with and, and what's your home office set up like and what's your home you know what's your home environment like is there anything there that i should be aware of pre-covid i wouldn't have necessarily encouraged people to ask that question because it wasn't as relevant but this year it has been right if, if someone's living alone in in a small apartment in new york city in the middle of you know the pandemic where th- things were really really bad the boss needs to know that so that they can attend to any issues that that might lead to in, in the working context. And a lot of leaders aren't comfortable with asking those questions or having those conversations. So you're right, we could talk about this all night, but I think that's one you know key element of a toolkit that a leader needs to have is being able to ask what might be uncomfortable questions and learn more about their employees from a personal perspective versus just, did you get you know this task done? Right. So it's, there's a lot more there, but that's, that's one thing that I've personally been, been encouraging people to do this year. I've got written down here that you're a dog lover. Um. <laughs> I have a new puppy as well. How's that going? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> she, she's, she's amazing. She's, um she's four, four months old, little Jack Russell. And you have, two? I have two dogs, two uh, puggles. They're half pug, half beagle, and they are loving and, and cuddly and also very mischievous and like to get into trouble <laughs> and are very food motivated. So they will like, they're always trying to get into food. They've, there's, I have a million stories there, but they're really fun. And, uh, I used to, I used to, volunteer at local animal shelters and 
uh, we didn't have a dog at that point, but we, our older dog, we saw her one day at an animal shelter and we went back three days in a row to see her. And we weren't quite sure if we were ready for a dog at that point. We also have two cats. So I'm just an animal lover in general. I'm also a vegetarian. So there's all, all sorts of things I could share there and reasons why, but um, we ended up bringing her home and we were terrified because we'd never had a dog. Of course, we had a, we had a son, you know, we had a human that we were taking care of. So it was a little similar, but um, we just fell in love with the breed. So we ended up getting another um a couple of years after that. So now we're actually outnumbered by animals in our house. There's three humans and four animals that live in my home. <laughs> love that. And, and that, you know, as lighthearted as it is, that's a lot of love to give in a day to um, a family, to animals, to your, your organization where you're leading and your community. What fills you up? Actually, giving is really one of the things that does uh, fill me up. So I've, um, I, I take a lot of assessment tools as, as part of the work that I do, I take my own medicine. And one of the tools that we give is a values inventory to get a sense of what's really driving someone. And I score really high on measures related to, um, affiliation. So I really like to build relationships and talk with a lot of people, you know, this conversation that I'm having right now, this is going to energize me for the rest of the day. I love stuff like this, right? I love connecting with people. And um, the second that's really high for me is uh, altruism. So I really like giving back. I, I love when I have a really good coaching conversation and I'm able to help someone solve a tough problem or something that's really challenging them. It's taxing for sure. You know, it's, it's draining to have those sorts of conversations day in and day out, but it energizes me too. It's sort of counterintuitive, right? It's uh, mm. it, it requires a lot of me because I'm creating that space for someone to work through something tough. Uh, but if I'm able to help them, I leave feeling more energized as a result. And it's, it's rewarding. It's what keeps me coming back for more. I love that. I um The other thing I did on your picture was I definitely zoomed in to see what books you had on the side of your desk because I, I, yeah, I equally have a ton of books on my desk and my shelf. Did I see Adam takes uh, Adam Grant's give and take on your desk? Yeah. So you're familiar with the this sense of this otherish giver? Yep. Mm. Yep. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? It's having this clarity that what's important to you is by giving. And how do you create boundaries? And I'm listening closely as someone that's learning boundaries. I'm not good at it. I'll, I'll tell you that, Ryan. I'm not good at it. So it's something that I'm. <laughs> um, but I, this is something actually that's been a big focus of mine over the last couple of years. And I was just telling one of my good friends and colleagues that I need to be less accessible. So I am so accessible. You can find me anywhere. I give people my cell phone number. People email me. I'm, you know, or LinkedIn message me or Facebook. I'm, I'm accessible and I really value being responsive to people. I don't ever want to make someone feel like I ignored them or let them down. But one of the things I've been doing to create boundaries over the last couple of years that's worked well is truly sleeping on something before I say yes or before I jump at an opportunity so that, and sometimes maybe even letting it go a couple of days so that I can be really intentional about what I take on because with my sort of personality and the work that I do, I often find myself overcommitted. You probably do too, right? If you're a giver, you're overcommitted a lot. Um, and so I've set boundaries by saying no to things 
that I would want to do that seem appealing and interesting to me, but would leave me overcommitted and not able to show up as well for the things that I've already committed to. So it seems simple, but just saying no and being really intentional and thoughtful about if I say yes to this thing, what does that mean I have to say no to? Because anything you add some, anytime you add something else to your plate, you're inevitably having to push something else aside or deprioritize. So uh, that process has been helpful for me in terms of setting boundaries, but I imagine it'll always be a challenge for me throughout my life to keep those boundaries. That's keeping you honest. Um, of all those books, are there any one or two that you'd highlight as game-changing? Oh, such a good question. Someone else just asked me this the other day. Um, I've read a lot of, of game-changing books, I would say, um, in different ways. One of the ones that recently really made an impact on me is um, Me and, and White Supremacy by Layla Sad, And she talks a lot about um, issues related to race and racial justice and uh, whiteness, you know, in, in, in the United States in particular. And that one was really impactful for me because I, I just learned a lot about myself that I didn't know and was able to think through different blind spots that I might have uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise ever, you know, been able to identify without that book. So that was a big one. I also am a huge Brene Brown fan. So, uh, I love Brene Brown's work and truly all of her work has had some sort of impact on me, but um, specifically the gifts of imperfect parenting. That was actually the first book that I read of hers. Actually, I listened to it on, on audio because I remember I listened to it during my commute. I have a, I used to have a long commute pre COVID and um, that had a big impact on me and led me to all of her other books, which I've, which I've really loved. So I, I, encourage everyone to read that book and so that i'm going to carry on with the theme of game changing and you talk about wanting to be a game changer in the leadership space what game are you changing i want to change the narrative about what effective leadership is or should be <laughs> because i think you know when we think manager we think male when we think manager we think you know a certain or leader we think a certain age or maybe, you know, that a person that looks a certain way. And I want to be part of changing that game, changing that narrative so that five years from now, 10 years from now, um, our leadership actually looks more like our world, which is diverse in terms of race and gender and backgrounds and all sorts of other, you know, categories. And I think we have to change the game on leadership in order to get there. We can't, you know, keep just focusing in on the status quo. Yeah. I love that. I, um, I, I've asked you questions about what leaders can do to help bring out this sense, but there will be a number of listeners right now that are female that have leadership potential within them that is going unnoticed, unrecognized, uncalled. What are some of the things that they can do today and tomorrow to make these steps towards becoming the leader that you describe? So the first thing is get comfortable with self-promotion, hmm. which is sometimes feels like an icky word. Uh, but a lot of the women that I work with are, are the, of the mindset that if I do really good work and add value that I will be noticed, that my boss will notice, that other senior leaders in the organization will notice. 
And that's simply not true, right? People are busy. It, it's how many times do you assume, you know, that someone maybe paid attention to something about you and you realize they didn't, and it's not personal. It's just that they're busy and they're managing their own world. Uh, and, and men tend to be in the research would support this better at self-promotion at saying, Hey, here's an accomplishment. Uh, and women aren't as good at that. So the sooner uh, everyone can get better at self-promotion, the more likely it is that people are going to notice wow. you and your contributions. Uh, the second would be um, taking chances. And my dog's barking in the background. So sorry. Cool. <laughs> The second well, one of them, the second would be taking chances. So women are also less inclined to take, to apply for a job, for example, that they don't see themselves as 100% qualified for. Whereas a man would look and say, well, I check off 50% of these boxes. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to apply and see what happens. Um, and I don't want to seem like I'm, you know, blaming women for that, but the, the message is take that chance, apply for that job, ask for that promotion, ask for that stretch opportunity. What's the worst that could happen? You get turned down or you get rejected. That's okay. You know, pick yourself up and learn from it. But at least you're then showing people that you're ready for something different and something new. And a door might open for you just as a result of even being willing to take that risk in the first place. I'm smiling and I'm nodding because I had that in my mind to ask you, why is it that men will back themselves when they've only got six out of 10 competencies and women have far more and yet they talk themselves out of it, you know, and it's this self-efficacy, back yourself. How hard is that? How hard is that for women? I don't really? generalize too much, but for people that don't back themselves. I think it's really, really hard, right? I think there's a lot underneath that. There's a lot of personal work that has to be done to get to get comfortable with that. Mm. It's funny, people will often ask me how, you know, how are you come across as so confident? What did you do, you know, to, to be confident in yourself? I'm not always confident in myself. I question myself a lot, um, you know, and I, I get anxious about things too. And, you know, I second guess something I said or did, but I think the key is, continuing to remind yourself of two things. One is what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst case scenario? So I speak up more often in a meeting to get noticed and I say something that didn't quite land. Oh, well, right. It's not, nobody else is going to be likely thinking of that the next day, unless you did something egregious. Right. But for the most part, people aren't going to be thinking of that. Um, so ask doing some of that, like worst case scenario planning with yourself. And then second, reminding I remind myself of my successes often uh, because I, I tend to focus on, you know, what's next, what's next. I just finished my PhD. Of course, I'm already like, maybe I should get my MBA or maybe there's something else out there for me. Um, I like self-torture, but I remind myself of where I've been. And I think women should do that. You, every, everyone should have a list of accomplishments that they could look at anytime they're feeling down or, or lacking confidence. Right. Um, because that's how you build yourself up and, and maybe it gets easier, maybe it doesn't, but having those strategies in place is key. Love that. I am going to wrap this up. And the, the last question I'd love to ask you is um, my ethos is about helping people be better than yesterday, always better than yesterday. I'm just curious to know, what does that phrase mean to you? Sorry, my, do my dogs are going crazy right now, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's all good it's all good <laughs> real life. um that phrase means to me being a lifelong learner <laughs>
There's someone at the door. Uh, <laughs> crazy, so I'm trying to pause for a moment. <laughs> You're all good. It means lifelong learning. That's what it means to me that there's that you're always looking to learn something new to question yourself, uh, to challenge your own thinking and assumptions and uh, continue to move the needle in whatever direction you want to move it in day by day by day. And I love the phrase it says on your website that whenever guests come to your house, they always learn something new. So it shows that you live that I do. It's why I'm surrounded by books, some of which I'm read, some I've read, some of which I haven't. I, <laughs> I, I am sad to say that I probably get a new book like every day. I just got this one, um, Fearless Organizations by Amy. Nice. Yeah. Um, she talks a lot about psych safety and mm. I'm always learning and, and it, I probably drive my friends and family crazy, but I, I always am looking for something new, a new insight, a new edge to have. And it, I think it's what helps me be a good coach too, because I can, I stay up to date with things, but um, it's true. I think always better than yesterday is a fantastic tagline. I, I would use it myself if you didn't already take it. And um, I think lifelong learning is synonymous with that. Well, very similar. And I think I've always had to remind myself that any new book I buy has to become self-development, not shelf development. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to take that one. I definitely have some sh some shelf development some going shelf on. Shelf development. It's a it's a reference library, isn't it? This has been an honor and privilege, Dr. Stephanie Mockler. I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to another one again in the near future. Yes, likewise, Ryan. Thanks so much for inviting me, and would love to come back at some point. Absolutely. Much love. Stay well. Bye bye. There we go, episode 104 with Stephanie Mockler. So much alignment. I love this sense of being a lifelong learner. Um, we both share a love for Brene Brown and just getting the best out of human beings, particularly those that need a little help bringing to the table. We rise by lifting others. I hope this has inspired you to do a little bit more of that today. Go and check out uh, Stephanie and her content, her webpage, her, um, her TEDx. And we look forward to welcoming you back for another episode next week. In the meantime, you can check out some shorter episodes and over two to three hundred uh, other little short episodes and, and training sessions that might help you or absolutely will help you be better in your heart and in your mind in some way. Please do share this with one person in your network, in your immediate circle, who you think will benefit from hearing what Stephanie's had to say, or generally what I share on the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. Until next time, I appreciate you. Always love. <laughs>